There we go. Good afternoon, everyone. Today is Wednesday, March 18th, 2015. Um, and my name is Luke Thomas. This is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. Thank you very much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Today on the podcast, let's see, you know what we're going to get to. UFC 185 fallout. We'll talk about the fights this weekend. Uh, UFC Fight Night 62, I believe. There's been some Bellator news. There's been some boxing news, but there's also whatever it is that you would like to talk about. Best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com in the comment section where this little window is up. If you would be so kind right now, I don't have a soda or anything, um, but you know the drill. Whenever you're watching this, be it live or any other time, if you wouldn't mind just sharing it on social media, you can share the YouTube link or you can share the post link, whatever. Just let folks know you're watching. I would greatly appreciate that. And of course, as, as always, um, use the hashtag chat rappers, all one word. So, and give this video a thumbs up too. That'd be cool. Uh, so with that out of the way, let's just go ahead and get to the questions now. Um, starting at the top, I put a poll up. Let me refresh the results, see what we got here. I put a poll up about who do you think will face Rafael Dos Anjos next for the UFC lightweight title? Obviously, that implying whether or not um, Nurmagomedov is going to beat Cerrone or vice versa. Now, there's not many votes on this, just 148, but so far, Nurmagomedov is at 86%. So not very scientific, but relatively interesting nonetheless. All right, and actually, first question, here we go. Dos Anjos versus Nurmagomedov 2. If and when the rematch happens, do you think it will resemble their first fight at UFC on Fox 11? Or does it entirely depend on how Habib looks post-surgery against Cowboy at 187? Yeah. So listen, we have a we have to hold our horses here a little bit. I'm excited about the idea of two, but we just need to desperately see how uh, Nurmagomedov looks against her. I'm a little, this little close-up, isn't it? There we go. That's a little bit better. Yeah, not too bad. Okay. Uh, yeah. Actually, now it's all dark, isn't it? I don't know. Whatever. There we go. Um, first, two considerations. One, the, the post-surgery Habib, see how he looks. Um, maybe he didn't lose a step. Maybe he did. We don't really know. That's the first part. Um, he got the surgery is getting better, and he got it in his 20s, so there's reason to believe that it may not have a real substantive effect on the way in which he competes, although sort of speed and explosion is a big part of his game. Like, I, If you listen to Monday Morning Analyst, I, I had noted that I had certainly slept on Dos Anjos. There's just no two ways about it. What was surprising to me was not, not exactly the depth of his technique, although some of the stuff at range surprised me a little bit. But uh, what really surprised me was the speed of Dos Anjos. The speed was incredible. Um, it was just amazing how much quicker he was than Pettis. Now, maybe that's because Pettis wasn't able to or giving his all in terms of speed because he was anticipating attacks. That could be the case too, but whatever the case was, there was a major differential. So if you go back and watch Nurmagomedov versus Dos Anjos, one, I mean, Nurmagomedov is even faster than Dos Anjos. So like the speed differential between he being Nurmagomedov and Pettis must be fairly noticeable if and when they ever compete against one another. Um, so that was kind of interesting to me. Listen, man, I don't know what's going to happen in the second one. Again, we don't know what's going to happen with Cerrone. First of all, he has to beat Cerrone, which is by no means an obvious thing. Um, part of what has held Nabib Nurmagomedov back a little bit, he's always been winning, but he hasn't had quite that finishing ability that he needs. I think that's a little problematic for him. Um, 
He has yet, I think, in the UFC to fight any kind of bout that's five rounds. Cardio, I wouldn't say, is a liability, but it's also not necessarily his strong suit. And his game is highly reliant upon having cardio. So if that at all is compromised in the fourth and fifth round, you can see that kid in a little bit of trouble. And obviously, he his entries are quick and they're explosive and they're highly offensive, but they're a little reckless at times, too. They're just a little bit reckless. He's a little bit neglectful about... Um, setting things up and having proper defense, a lot of just flying knees with no setup, things like that where someone really with that pinpoint accuracy can can counter you and give you some problems. So so that's sort of what I think is something to, to watch out for. But in watching that first fight again, which I just watched today, it was amazing to me. I've mentioned this before, but I don't know. I'm thinking through the ranks of MMA fighters in any weight class. I cannot imagine who is a more complete grappler than Nurmagomedov. It's just unbelievable what he can do. All of the counters that most guys use to wall walk, he has either takedowns off of those positions or he has rides off of those positions that set up further takedowns. He can do it all. He can do folk-style rides like spiral riding. He can do single leg takedowns, blast double. He has takedowns that are entirely constructed off of an opponent having their back against the cage. In the first round, Dos Anjos, and he did this against Pettis. Dos Anjos is really good about fishing for underhooks, right? Controlling that inside space is just so critical to everything in grappling. And uh, he got one on one side of Nurmagomedov. Nurmagomedov is a horse, man. He just closed his elbow on the same side where he lost the underhook got a gable grip and used it to pick up, change directions, and then trip over Dos Anjos back to the cage. Ridiculous use of strength, grappling strength, which you just build up over time, um, and an amazing technique. He didn't get lifted on the side with the underhook. The underhook was there, but it was a little lazy. So he was able to pinch it down. Amazing. Amazing number made up. From there, he has, you know, standard, just uh, ordinary uh, wrestling takedowns you see in MMA. But he also can take the back. He's got dominant positioning on top. Um, and when he loses in a counter from like Wizards and two on ones, uh, he's got judo takedowns. You know, he's got uh, an Osoto Gari, he's got Harai Goshi, he's got Uchimadas. So, like, he just takes every different piece of grappling and puts it all together. But it's more than that because Dos Anjos has pretty good wrestling too and pretty good jiu-jitsu too, you know? Like it's not like he's got just one thing he's working on. But the blending of them in Nurmagomedov's case is so effortless. It's so instinctual and reactionary and there's just no hesitation about how to move between the pieces. He has other liabilities that could cost him against Dos Anjos in a second fight or Cerrone in his upcoming fight, or really anybody else. He does have some liabilities, and so he needs to shore those up. It'll be interesting to see how much he's worked on those, um, you know, between his last fight and now. Maybe he, maybe he's tightened some of that up too. You never know. But I think without a shadow of a doubt, and I'm, try, I'm struggling to think of someone better, who is a better all-around grappler in MMA than Habib Nurmagomedov? It's, it is not an obvious candidate. Jacare is obviously pretty incredible, but even Jacare doesn't have all those things put together. Um, he's a little bit better of a finisher, so maybe you can say something like that, right? Um, he's a little bit better about closing the show on guys who are pretty inferior. Nurmagomedov is a little bit better at ground and pound than he is at 
uh, any kind of submission attempts, which he doesn't really put many in anyway. So maybe in that sense, uh, Nurmagomedov isn't, but at least in terms of the takedown and positional control battle, Christ, he is the best. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. He does everything, every, every known combat art that deals with grappling, he's got it. And he's got it in spades. It's it's madness to think about that. So we'll see. Uh, Henry Cejudo versus Juicier Formiga uh, at UFC 188 in Mexico City. Both fighters have shown interest in the fight and lo location. Do you think it's a little too soon for Cejudo to get a guy like Formiga this early? If he wins, he could potentially be one to two fights away from a title shot. Well, first of all, if I think he wins that, they might just give him one, unfortunately, uh, because of the depth of the division. I mean, I don't wish any any ill will on Demetrius Johnson at all, but part of me, um, you know, which is he would go on sabbatical or, again, I would never want him to get injured, but just, I don't know, for him to just go away for a bit, not because I dislike him, but because Cejudo could be that guy, but as long as Demetrius Johnson's relevant and hungry for fights, I think the wins at the back of Cejudo to get him at the front of the line are going to be a little too strong for a promoter and maybe even Cejudo himself to pass up. Uh, if there were an interim title he could hold on to and defend, I would be a little bit more happier about that, But um, which is a rare thing you know, I would ever say, but there we are. Um, in terms of the fight, yeah, I like it a lot. As you know, Formiga obviously doesn't have quite the wrestling that Cejudo does, but what, if you noticed against Cejudo, against Carriasso, Carriasso was able to recapture guard or half guard or use a knee shield. He wasn't so great at controlling the posture of Cejudo, but he was good at establishing at least some kind of fundamental guard to keep Cejudo at bay. The finer points of Cejudo's passing weren't quite really there. Um, I did like Cejudo's ability to mix in strikes with his passing and then strikes from a dominant positional control spot, but there are certainly some finer points of the jiu-jitsu jiu or grappling or whatever else you want to say he doesn't quite have yet. I'm sure he will get them with a little more application and time. I'm just saying at this moment and as we speak, not quite there. Someone like Formiga is really going to test him. Someone like Formiga is going to make him have a camp where those kinds of things are relevant, or he'll just work on his takedown defense and bang him out on the feet. Either way, it, I, I thought also that Carriasso, you know, Carriasso had some success with that with that middle kick. Now that was because of a few certain factors. I think he had game plan around it. I think that obviously having the, the open stances on either side, right versus left, um, great for that opportunity. But there was a, Cejudo. I thought looked great. I think getting three rounds against Carriasso was awesome for him as a prospect. Um, it also underscored that he's got some things he has to work on. Um, and I think a guy like Formiga would force Cejudo into the proper kind of preparation to shore up some of the very things that if he does shore them up, uh, and you can't do it all in one camp, of course, but you know, a guy like Cejudo can learn some of these things uh, more quickly than other guys. Um, it, I just think it's a perfect fight. I just think it's a perfect fight. It's exactly the right kind of thing for him. And I don't think that's too much too soon, although I would admit that's a pretty tough fight for Cejudo, but I think it's the right one. I really think it's the right one. It, 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 you you got to get better at these certain things, even though you already have some ability in there. This guy is going to really put you to the test. You need to make sure you're on your P's and Q's against him. Let's see if you can do it. That, to me, is what else could you ask for? And it's in Mexico, and he speaks Spanish, and he has Mexican immigrant parents. Like It's, to me, perfect. You know, And to have a guy like that, go in and beat a Brazilian, a highly ranked Brazilian in Mexico. I mean, I know he's American in every way, and in some ways a Mexican in every way too, you know, but um, I don't know. I think it'd be good for that market. I think it'd be really good for that market. 
even if he is, you know, an American and represented America in the Olympics, I still feel like having a having a Latino guy who who identifies with those people and those people identify with him going in there and wrecking shop over a highly touted Brazilian, that sends a message, you know, even if it's a false message in some some capacity. All right, Carla Esparza. Luke, do you have any insight to what was wrong with Esparza? She really didn't look like she wanted to be there and seemed to give up quick when she couldn't get the takedown. Yeah, I have to say, um, I was kind of surprised at her performance. Now, look, let me just sort of make a note here. Maybe uh, Yen Jacek would have won no matter what. Right, I think we have to entertain that possibility because the, th the thing that surprised me most about her was that I knew her takedown defense was good, but it was only good in the sense that it had put up a wall. She was not so great at creating separation. And I think what I saw in this fight was she had now incorporated angular movement uh, and kept her back off the cage. So there was things she was doing that once she stopped the takedown, she was able to reset the position basically on, on her feet. Right? We talk about it all the time on this chat, how critical that is to success in MMA. You can stop guys with your back against the cage, but if you spend all your time there or significant portions of a round, you're losing on cage control or a version of it, and you're losing on the idea that if they can keep you there long enough, eventually they might find an opening. What you want to do is stop the takedown and get right away. Jose Aldo is the king of it, right? Um, so we have to give her credit there. And that may have played a key role no matter what. But, and you can tell me I'm wrong, it's fine. But that, to me, did not look like the best Esparza I've ever seen. Forget about the best Esparza that there is. I don't think that was even in keeping with previous performances. And, yes, a key component of that is that Joanna did that to her, right? Frustrated her and got her to panic. Okay, fine. Um but to me, if you go back and watch some of her fights, an ultimate fighter or whatever through the course of her career, she's good at getting a shot in, in a darting angle and then getting back out again. And she doesn't even need to necessarily set up takedowns off of that. She wasn't really doing that. Now, again, to what extent was that Joanna's issue? I don't know. But um, obviously, obviously some of that was clearly attributable to what she was doing. But it's just so completely unlike Esparza to just dive on you. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what to attribute that to, to being rattled, to being just technically overmatched to what Carla had said was that she was just didn't want to be there necessarily because uh, she wanted to take time off and didn't get the chance and she just wasn't mentally in the right place. Maybe all those things are true. But to me, uh, and also remember, this was Esparza's first time fighting in a big arena. You know, she had never done that before. And that doesn't mean anything for some fighters. It means a lot to others. Everyone's kind of different in that regard. But uh, I just think that, for me, there is way more to Esparza's striking, even against capable strikers, that she didn't bring to this fight. And so, again, maybe Joanna would have won no matter what. I'm perfectly willing to entertain that possibility. But I don't think that Joanna got put through the paces of the best Esparza. And I give Joanna some of that credit. I also think that Esparza um, was dealing with something internal about presenting that kind of game uh, to her opponent. But we'll see when, when she returns, you know. Someone says uh, they give a lot of credit to Joanna. Uh, to me, Joanna was and is simply a better and more effective fighter than Carla, no matter how I look at it. 
This is the, this person talking. Just like RDA is better than Pettis at this moment, a lot of times you lose because you are not better than the opponent. This is the case and with both the recent title fights. Yeah, but this is just generic talk. You have to like explain why. Scott's American Cowboy versus Dagestani Cowboy, who will get their hand raised. Again, huge issue about what he's going to look like coming back, but all things being equal, I have a hard time seeing uh, Nurmagomedov lose. If Cerrone starts slow, which <laughs> let me assure you, Nurmagomedov does not, he's going to be all over him like white on rice. Um, and from pillar to post, it's only a three-round fight. And, you know, maybe uh, Cerrone will have his moments with leg kicks. But if he does, I suspect eventually one of those is going to get snatched and he's going to get single leg to the ground now. Cerrone has a good guard, but so does Dos Anjos. Um, I don't – I think, uh, you know, Dos Anjos attempted a number of guillotines on Nurmagomedov that went nowhere. So, to me, uh, I have a hard time seeing Nurmagomedov lose. But, as we know, I sure as hell didn't see Dos Anjos doing five rounds of that. Anthony Pettis. So anything is possible. The sport is 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 badass. But I just think that like this is what Nurmagomedov does. He starts off, he sets the pace, he gets all over you. Cerrone's takedown defense has gotten a lot better, but it's no match for Nurmagomedov. At least the one we're accustomed to seeing. Um, and his positional control is great. I don't think he'll finish Cerrone. That would send a huge statement. I don't think he'll do that at all. And Cerrone might be able to catch him one way or the other. But uh, if I had to bet, which I don't, but if I did, I would I would go with. Uh, Mr. Dagestani Cowboy. You know what's funny? I was thinking about this today. Why are Nurmagomedov and Yanjechik uh, so compelling to us? Right? Why is that? You know, because th th these are people who don't speak the language natively, and they come from a different place. And I've often made the point that if there was there was a time, and the UFC does not do this anymore. Thank God they do it the right way now, and it's perfect now. But there was a time, and Bellator still does this, and I hate it. Um, when they would have a foreign fighter talking over a vignette, and they would dub over them rather than putting subtitles. And I think that's always a huge mistake. You always want to hear someone speak in their native language. You want to hear how they a, a, a language as a native person speaks it is a window into who they are and where they come from. Uh, even regionally. I mean, could you imagine someone dubbing over Martin Luther King with, you know, I don't know, a French understanding of English? It would just be a disaster. You would never understand who he is. You got to hear him speak it. Um, and yet with their limited grasp of English, you still get a pretty, it feels like, maybe not, but it feels like we have a window into them that we didn't see before. And I was trying to wrap my head around why. Um, maybe, you know, this is just a completely, maybe even a silly theory, but I'm going to float it. My mother was an immigrant. My mother was an Armenian immigrant who grew up, she was born in Syria and, uh, and lived in Lebanon most of her life and came here after she married my father. So I had an immigrant mother and, uh, I don't know, that kind of always made me gravitate towards other people who, who were immigrants. It's just always been my life. My wife's an immigrant, just kind of how I've always, I don't know, it's just how I live my life, I guess. And I had a best friend in high school, he's still my best friend today, who was uh, Iranian. And they were Baha'i, and they had fled uh, Iran in 1979 when there was a revolution there. Anyway, and uh, he had a family member. And there's just something, and my mother was the same way, there's just something about, uh, from certain parts of the world anyway, 
there's just something about the immigrant experience that when they when they become proficient in English, they there's a certain um, humorous bluntness to the way they talk. And I don't mean the way they talk, but I mean the things that they say. You see it with Joanna. She's got a little spark and there's a certain bluntness to her. Nurmagomedov saying Pettis belongs on the prelims. Um, it's it's there's I guess there's ways to promote a fight, and part of it is like you know stylized presentation of language, maybe like a, more like a Chael Sonnen thing. And then there's a certain amount of just you know Chris Weidman to a lesser extent, just kind of like candor, you know, just total candor. And you get that with some of these with some of these guys who are um, you know developing their English. And I remember like this one of his this Iranian relative of my friends. He one time said, and he wasn't even trying to joke. You know, we we're talking about like drugs in school or something. And he said, man, you know, he, obviously his first language is Farsi. And he goes, man who smoke marijuana, he is same as cow. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. You know what I mean? And it just reminded me, like I remember when I, whenever, you know, man who smoke marijuana, he is same as cow. It just, there's a certain bluntness and old schoolness to it um, that reminded me of the way in which Nurmagomedov speaks about his contemporaries. And it reminded me of this way in which Joanna Jacek asserts herself, you know. Um, maybe it's a silly theory, I don't know, but I'm always sort of listening to that kind of thing, given my background and, uh, and, uh, and, and the people who have always been in my life. Anyway, back on the horse, Overeem, I get what you mean. Given Overeem's thorough UFC 185 victory, do you think he's back on the horse, or is it inevitable that he gets KO'd yet again eventually? Well, um, he did really well against uh, Nelson, but Nelson is, I, I won't say tailor-made for him, because I think part of the thing that I misunderstood there was I figured that if Overeem put the fight in the clinch or put the fight in the ground, which he was more than capable of doing, he had a very strong chance of winning. And that technique for technique Overeem is better than Nelson at range. But because of his inability to absorb damage, that seemed like a risky proposition. But what you saw was that when, when Overeem is technically, and Nelson, uh, excuse me, not Nelson, but um, Rothwell was that situation too, but Rothwell has at least more. Rothwell doesn't have one weapon that's as strong as Nelson's overhand right, but he has a little bit wider variety of weapons. Okay, so that sense is a little more unpredictable. But Nelson really just sort of relies on the uppercut and then the overhand right of the right. That's basically it. That's, that's what he uses. Even if he could choose to use more, he just doesn't. And so uh, in that predictability, Overeem was able to just do what he wanted, flying knees, middle kicks, leg kicks, inside and outside, changing sides, changing stances rear uppercuts, hit overhand rights himself. And you, you notice he was doing a pretty good job of blocking the overhand right. Now it snuck through at the end. And I think that's sort of what I was waiting for. Nelson wasn't quite able to do it because he was just a little too predictable. Um, you know, Dos Anjos, oh, excuse me, yeah, Dos Santos has taken a fair amount of punishment in his career, but I don't, he's got a lot more weapons too. You know, you saw that against Mark Hunt when he whipped out the spinning heel kick. Oh, the wheel kick at this point. I can't remember anymore. But he has another bag of tricks he can use, and he's got a lot of different punches too. Um, and he's got a jab. How about Shane Carwin's face? So to me, you know, I, I, I think it's an interesting fight against Dos Santos, but I would, even after those wars with now Miocic and Velasquez, 
I'd probably still favor him. Uh, it's a good question, and I'm not the right guy to answer it. MMA in Japan. <clears throat> Can you give us an update on the current state of Japanese MMA? I can't, but what I already have done is uh, I reached out to some people who have a better grasp of this than I do. Um, because it's interesting. Folks were wondering about the Valley Tudo Japan, sort of using it to launch Ultimate Fighter in the country and the 16-man flyweight and bantamweight. There you go, round-robin tournament, all that stuff. Uh, I don't have a good answer for you. But I'm gonna. I have already reached out feelers to figure out what's going on. MMA was in a spot before when it was a little less. MMA is now, in some ways, MMA is um, more international than ever. I think I pointed that out in my single to noise column. Look, look at this card. Like there was Canadians and there was a Polish champion for the first time, and first ever Brazilian lightweight champ, and there were of course Americans, and then you had this diversity angle with Carriasso and Zahudo, and then the Dutch strikers, and so on and so on and so on. Um, but uh, in some ways, because of the UFC being an American company, in some ways it's a little more, the, the source of information has become a little more um, centralized and there's just no power players with reliable information coming out of Japan like there used to be. There's just no one, there's just not a lot of people on the ground there. Daniel Herbertson moved to Australia, I think, and or back to Australia anyway. Um, and, or maybe Korea, I don't even know. But you know, I don't know if Tony Lawazler is even there anymore. and. There's just not a lot of information coming out of this for us to get a really clean grasp of it. But uh, I've already reached out to some folks to see who may still actually have some knowledge of it. Um, and I'll report back as soon as I do. By the way, on that note though, um, shout outs to Karim Zidane or Kareem Zidane, however he pronounces it. I don't know how it's properly pronounced, but um, he has a piece on what Joanna uh, Janjacek's win means for Polish MMA. It's not exactly what you think it would be. On the one hand, there's some optimism about, um, you know, could this be the most important fight in Polish MMA history in terms of turning it around? And others express some, some, you know, not concern exactly, but skepticism about it. Um, UFC does not have a TV deal in Poland. And right now, uh, KSW, their, their top show does. And of course, Maria uh, Pujanowski competes for, or at least has competed for KSW. And so there's a little bit more uh, all, you know, all roads lead to KSW kind of feel right now. But perhaps if the UFC can get on TV there and they can see her, and as I mentioned, there's a thriving women's scene there as well. Um, certainly it's a good thing that Joanna won, but maybe, or Joanna, whatever, uh, that she won. But maybe we should dial back some of the enthusiasm about what it all could mean, at least in the short run. It's Without that UFC TV deal, KSW still really holds a predominant amount of attention on television there and attention from the community there generally. Tiago Alves versus Carlos Condit set to headline UFC fight night. I can't even pronounce this word. Uh, it's in Brazil. Also, Bech Cahaya versus Jessica I, rumor for that card as well. Uh, I look for Bech Cahaya to take that one down for sure. Um, and just guy to look to, uh, I think just guy hits a little bit harder on the outside. And I think she'll probably want to leverage that power. So that's how I like that one. Alves versus Condit is going to be interesting. Here's another case. We have a guy who has just been gone for a long time in Carlos Condit. How's he going to look? Is he going to have the kind of explosion that he needs? Um, might Tiago Alves even try to take it down, uh, take him down? You never know. Um, 
that they have very similar styles too. Alves is a little bit more of an inside fighter, um, but they both uh, use leg kicks as the beginning and ends of their offense. A lot of it comes off of that. There are not a lot of guys who jab first. Um, they kind of leg kick first and throw hooks on the opposite side. Um, Carlos Condit, a little bit better about going to the body. Alves is a little bit more of a headhunter. Uh, but they uh, so the difference in them is their pace of their offense, the physicality of it, and then the length of their bodies and, and the proportion of it. And that sort of changes up the decisions they make in the interim. But that one, very, very similar styles, those two guys. That's going to be an interesting one to see. Work and play. Luke, if it wasn't your job, how much MMA would you actually watch? I'd still watch a lot of combat sports, but probably significantly less. Um. Because remember, my free time I do jiu-jitsu, but I don't really connect that to MMA. It's like its own thing, separate from it, believe it or not. Um, but yeah, there's just a lot of bad MMA, and I wouldn't watch it. This job requires that I have as much awareness of what's going on as possible. Uh, without that, I would be focused on the best stuff only. Because from a personal standpoint, that is the only thing that interests me. Well, that's not quite true, but it's mostly true. Uh, I personally don't see Pettis beating Habib or Dos Anjos anytime soon just because of the stylistic mismatch. Do you, th do you think a move to 145 could be good for Pettis? Realistically, the only guys that I think can give Pettis problems at 145 are Edgar Mendez or Lamas, all for the obvious reasons. What do you think? I really have a hard time understanding how people think he can move to 145. I mean, maybe he can do it. It's not, I'm not saying it's impossible. Maybe George Lockhart can make uh, you know miracles happen. But that's kind of what you would need as a miracle to get him to look like that. I would classify his current weight cut as uh, difficult but manageable. I would classify any attempt to get to 145 as insanely difficult. Not impossible probably, but very – I mean, so difficult that you begin to ask, is it worth it now? Is getting to that weight, while possible, in any shape or form, rewarding or – contributing towards any kind of decline in performance. Um, also, to your point, I think he would be able to handle Lamas maybe, but someone like Edgar and Mendez who can mix up strikes and takedowns really well and are smaller, especially a guy like Edgar who could even go to 135. If you're looking at a guy who has a speed differential problem at 155, that's going to be magnified at 145. So I don't really understand why the 145 argument is even in play here. I'm not sure he can make it. I'm not sure that even if he could make it, he would be able to perform at the level which he did at 155. And some of the things that plagued him, at least in this Dos Anjos fight, about having this, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination, Pettis is slow. But I think a lot of his game is, and it's, it's a lot of quick strike stuff, but a lot of his game is misdirection. A lot of Pettis' game is get you looking over here and then bang, this comes out. A lot of him is him, you getting you to think low and he throws high. A lot of it is combinations you don't see coming because it's a precision of technique. It's a, it's a, it's, I wouldn't call it sleight of hand because it's not trickery, but um, it's just a mastery over getting reactions out of you. A guy like Dos Anjos and a guy like Nurmagomedov, they're physically on top of you and putting their hands on you. It's not something I, I, I thought his takedown defense would be better than it was, and it simply was not there in the way in which I had anticipated. And uh, so I have to dial that back. And now that we've dialed that back, when you begin to look at this game and the faults in it, 
those guys are going to be bad matchups for him. That's the same, maybe less so Edgar, but definitely a guy like Mendez. If Mendez wanted to fight that way, just get all over him, he could. And those guys are going to have pretty clear speed differentials. And they're not so bad strikers anymore either. So I, I, I think that the real key for him is he's got to get, he needs to get off, get off. And he's got to work on his takedown defense and he's got to work on, uh, you know, what Joanna was, or Joanna was doing in her last fight. She was much better about staying off the cage, just circling back to the inside, circling back to the inside. Because if you go back and watch Dos Anjos versus Nurmagomedov, Dos Anjos comes right at him, marches towards him, tries to pressure him and cut the cage off. Well, you know what Nurmagomedov does? The exact same thing back. Well, guess who won? So who is now the best striker in MMA? Prior to last weekend's fights, I was under the impression that Pettis was the best current striker in the game. A few years ago, it was Silva. So now, who is your opinion about the best striker in MMA? I'm saying Joanna or Joanna. I think it's a little bit early to say that, but uh, Jose Aldo might be able to get that get that award from me. He is fairly phenomenal. Pettis still might be the best striker in terms of if you stand in front of him, what he is capable of doing to you. Um, because I think that Dos Anjos was getting the best of him early, but that head kick missed off the throat uh, in the, I think the second or third round. I think that one thing that Pettis does to you is he does make adjustments off of you, and he's a little bit slow with it, but he does do them. And so I still would not necessarily eliminate him from the conversation, although his place falls. Um, and Aldo is a little bit more limited. He just likes what he likes, and he gets out of the way. So there's that, too. Um, Maybe there's no clear heir to Silva's throne. Ian Jacek is certainly in the conversation, but I think you have to build up a body of work first for me to really buy into that, which she doesn't quite have yet. She may soon put together that in a year's time and we can revisit this conversation. But for now, I don't know, maybe Aldo. It's it's not it's not exactly that that clear. Hmm. It's a good question though. Why is no one calling for Roy Nelson's retirement? Easy, very easy, because he's not, well, he, he did against Hunt, but he's not getting brutally knocked out in consecutive bouts, right? His toughness is a problem, and there's something interesting about it. He He's not getting disfigured in the way that Dos, uh, Santos was. Right, what people look for is, man, that guy got beat up real bad, and then it happens again in close succession. We are like, wait a second, didn't that just happen? Didn't this guy just lose just like this? Okay, that's a little problematic. In the case of Dos Santos, you have those two wars with Kane, and then the other one with Miocic. That's hugely problematic. The problem with Nelson is, yeah, he had a bad run in against Verdun, and he got flatlined. Sort of, not even, not even flatlined. But he got face first KO'd against Hunt. Okay, fine. But he knocks a lot of guys out still who are at a lower level. He takes a tremendous shot, and his face just doesn't show the scars of battle. This is this is it's it's like uh, it's like the NASCAR argument, like you know, or even the football argument. These guys have these traumatic brain injuries, but they're wearing helmets, and you know, you you know intellectually that oh, look at this. This is a terrible thing for them. Look at them running into each other. Isn't this such a terrible thing that we're witnessing? But at the same time, because it's all in pads and this is a team sport and, um, you know, it's sort of elevated as a 
uh, every kind of person's you know cultural experience it's all kind of sanitized in a way mma has never had that luxury it's the violence and the costs are right there out in the open um, but if you can conceal them by the way in which you compete or by some of the natural gifts that you have you know uh, 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 Fedor Milianenko was easy to cut Roy Nelson does not appear very easy to cut he is still experiencing some of the things you're talking about but he is masking them you know but Roy Nelson's 38 and he has taken a tremendous beating I think in the heavyweight division he's absorbed more strikes than anyone else in UFC history you know that's a that's a moment where he should be concerned we should have a pause and say wait what happened here and if he had gotten KO'd against Overing you'd say okay sure but I think he's one and four in his last five fights let me let me verify that before I just go out and say it. But I believe that's correct. Roy Nelson, he's 38 years old. That part is true. He's going to be 39 in June. Yeah, his last four, his last five, excuse me, he's one and four. He lost to Miocic by decision. He lost to Cormier by decision. See what I mean? Then he beat Noguera badly. We saw that. Then he lost to Hunt via KO. Okay, fine. And then he lost to Overeem, but it was by decision. In fact, when he's lost, he got stopped by Mark Hunt. He got decisioned by Verdum. He got decisioned by Mir. He got decisioned by Dos Santos. He got decisioned by Monson. The last two, only two times he's been stopped, and you can call the one against Arlovsky BS because of how the stand-up went, was 2008. People want to see someone not just you know lose, but have some kind of referendum on their, um, you know, about the body's ability to take a toll, take the toll of, of, of the job. And I'm with you. I think these concerns are more than relevant. I just mean to say that's what you're up against. You're up against the phony way to judge things, but the common way to judge things. Let's see, uh, on the Twitter machine, Joseph Benavidez versus John Dodson for five rounds. Who wins and why? Um, I think Dodson wins uh, because of uh, activity late. Um, I do, I've seen Dodson too many times fade. I was there for the John Dodson versus Pat Runez fight. You can get in his face and force him. His fourth and fifth round just aren't as good as first three. If you can steal one of those first three, you can definitely take the fourth and the fifth. Um, so I would favor Dodson, but that would be, excuse me, Benavidez, but that would be a hell of a match. Do you think Joe Stevenson stands a chance at EBI three? Let me say something about this. So Joe Stevenson, Joe Daddy Stevenson, I believe, is going to be in uh, the third Eddie Bravo Invitational, the Snow Grappling Tournament that takes place on Sunday. A buddy of mine grappled with Joe Stevenson not too long ago and said, um, he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, so his overall game is good, but he's got great footlocks. Something like that, some kind of uh, ace in the hole, that's a fairly unusual technique for jiu-jitsu guys, like footlocks and the variety of them, toe holds, Achilles locks, heel hooks, inverted heel hooks, um, and a steam lock, all kinds of stuff. If you can do that, you can dramatically up your ability to win, even against guys who might have a more complete game than you. Um, let's see. Could you break down the under-the-radar Maya versus LaFlair fight this weekend? This is actually going to be an interesting fight, especially if you're a grappling nerd. LaFlair has great wrestling, so I think he can get the takedowns. No one has better trips in the game from the clinch, maybe just no better trips, period, than Demi and Maya. That's a fact. And so what I think could happen is 
Uh, LaFleur might win the takedown, and I don't think that Maya's guard is in by any stretch of the imagination easy to pass, but I think that LaFleur has really underrated submission defense. He's got at least active ground and pound. He's relentless with the takedown. He's a little loose and a little sloppy sometimes, but maybe he has, you know, ironed out those pieces of his game. Um, I got my cup zero in here. And so maybe that's something we should think about. Um, but I like, I don't know who's favorite to win. I think I like LaFleur to win, uh, provided he doesn't strike too long on the feet. On the feet in the clinch, I think Maya could chew him up. Yeah, see, LaFleur's favored. I'm completely in agreement with that. I think that LaFleur can get chewed up in the clinch, um, but I feel like Maya is sort of getting up there in age. I don't think LaFleur has nearly the same number of miles, and I think if he can keep pressure on him, um, that's his to lose. But I also reserve the judgment for and the, and the right to say um, Maya has more than an okay chance at catching him off of his back. Let's go back to the chat. Josh Koscheck also fights this weekend. You think Josh Koscheck would go to Bellator after his fight with Eric Silva? He stands to potentially make a lot of money if he does. He could easily have grudge matches with Paul Daly, Stefan Bonner, and Tito Ortiz. I find it unlikely. He seems to think that he wants to be done. I think as a guy who has performed at a high level for athletically for much of his life, that it takes a certain amount of uh, – it's difficult to deal with performance decline like that. Not so much winning and losing exactly, but just not – just having your biology not be what it is, you know, uh, when you age a little bit, you don't realize this until you get older, of course, not that I'm old, but God, when I was 25, man, I was in the weight room every day, you know, and now I have to alternate days in the gym when I don't lift weights at all from just, you know, wrestling and jujitsu because I get soreness in the joints of my elbow. I can't go three days in a row. I can only go two days in a row. And then I have to take two days off. This is crazy. It's crazy. Now I'm not, you know, Josh Koscheck, world-class athlete, but I'm also not doing the kind of things to my body that he is. And just having that decline. And, you know, you're, once you're 37, your skill set's already there. It's a question of whether or not you'd be able to, to use that against elite competition. I think he just knows that that's not there. That said, for all these guys who retire, say, I want to finish out my contract with UFC, that's fine. Um but perhaps down the road he might decide that there's a paycheck there that he could go and collect. You never know. Because I don't think he's going to entirely remove himself from MMA or the training environment. I'm sure he'll dial it back to some extent. But those guys who are, have been athletes their whole life, they don't, they don't walk away from that too, too easy. Especially since he's part of the, and I think a co-owner in or full owner in, the Dethrone Base Camp. So um, but my answer to you would be that I find it unlikely he would go to Bellator. But it's one of those situations in the fight game that you'd be foolish to rule out. Was Pettis' loss good or bad for the lightweight division? Does it shake anything up? Also, was his loss bad for the UFC in any way? Was he really nearing a superstar status, as many had said? I really never saw him near that status. You didn't see him near that status, but that doesn't mean he wasn't nearing it. Yeah, it's listen, I think it's a short, you know, bad or good, I don't know if it's the word. Um... Because ultimately, if you can't hold it, why invest any energy in it? Here's the problem. And maybe, and listen, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. There was a belief about Pettis that if he just had the time to work, 
if you just had the time to stay healthy and get competition under his belt and put the kind of resume he needed to put together, he had what it took to be a flashy star. Now, maybe not a Ronda Rousey starring in the movie star, um, but somebody who could move move the needle, the proverbial needle, yeah? And I don't think that that presupposition was wrong. I think it was right. I really do. The way he was winning, um, he did not have good takedown defense against Gilbert Melendez in the first round, but he had it in the second. And the way in which he was winning, just blowing out Cowboy Cerrone with his damage. And when he is good, and when he does the things you know he can do, it's quite amazing. You know, those four body kicks landed in quick succession, just the narrow amount of time and space that Pettis needs to, to, to score damage, and then the ability for him to react off of that damage is fantastic. We can't really forget that. Dos Anjos is making people forget about that, but the guy is special. No doubt about it. He is very special. Um, and so I think the thought was that he had maybe turned a corner with his grappling and that his striking was already so far out ahead and his ability to marry the two. Remember, his grappling as such, I mean, what this fight showed you with his, his grappling is just not there. There's so much to grappling besides submissions, so much. This is why people are like, I can't stand IBJJF tournaments. All they do is score points. Dude, you know how hard it is to finish somebody good? You know how hard it is to finish somebody bad? It's hard. It's very, very hard. This is a re person resisting who's athletic in shape and has at least some knowledge of how to defend themselves. And you're working under time constraints. Like it's hard to it's hard to finish somebody. Um, but his ability to hit you, make it hurt, force poor choices, and then bring his quick strike submission game to life. Um, you know, obviously UFC management believed in him and the way in which they pushed him in this fight. I mentioned this at Signal to Noise. Look, it backfired this time. There's no, there's no two ways about it. It backfired. But when they did it against Conor McGregor, I think it helped push him. He was already on his way, but I think, you know, a little more fuel for the fire. It backfired against Pettis. Okay, fine. I think the difference between the two, uh, here's what I'm trying to say. I didn't think the idea of pushing him as they did was a bad idea. I thought it made sense. In retrospect, the difference between Pettis and Dos Anjos and McGregor and Seaver was that Seaver was like sort of tailor-made for McGregor. In other words, McGregor wasn't at a position and Seaver was just pushing his way up and you had to give it to him. Pettis was the champion and defending a title. And so ostensibly they wanted to give him a top contender. And they're really because Nurmagomedov was out, that was the top contender, right? So there was an inevitability of them clashing. Seaver was just sort of picked out of a lineup because it made the most sense for the promotional opportunities. And, you know, he was a credentialed fighter. Okay, fine. Right. But that's where those, those two situations differ. And maybe that made all the difference. Maybe that made all the difference. Because I think when you go all in on someone like that, when you believe in someone like that, and they've given you enough meat to chew on, I didn't necessarily think in and of itself it was a bad idea uh, or a bad practice. In retrospect, it was it was wrong. It just didn't work. It just didn't work. But I'd be I'd be a little upset with UFC if they stopped doing that. Maybe they need to narrow the circumstances in which they do that. You know, maybe two times in a year, or, or you know, how, what was the McGregor fight? January or so. Maybe that wasn't the best idea. But um, as a practice, I'm not against it. But but yeah, it's disappointing to UFC brass. And I think that if he had been able to turn a corner. Here's I mentioned this I think on last week's chat where there was a several year period 
where we were kind of transitioning out of the last generation of stars into the new one. And I'm not saying that this generation of stars is as good as the previous generation in terms of their box office potential. I'm not saying that, but I kind of feel like we've finally mostly turned the corner. Most of the guys who were that first generation of stars from Liddell to Couture, you know, Ortiz is doing his thing in Bellator, but you know what I mean? The Hughes and the Pens and the Griffins, even Anderson Silva to an extent. They're kind of, that, that, that generation's almost gone. Not entirely, but almost. Vitor Belfort's like the last, last one kind of hanging on there a little bit. Um, and a new one has kind of finally emerged. And I kind of thought that Pettis would be that guy to finally move up and take that space and become among the other stars in the current UFC, another one who'd be a commercial uh, draw. Didn't work out, but it doesn't mean he can't in the future or that someone else can't assume that mantle. But I kind of feel like we had moved into that and they were trying to coronate him. It just didn't work. Um, but I, I think his potential is still there. And, you know, at the end of the day, listen, if you can't hold that title, you just don't deserve to. This is why all that talk about McGregor, oh, McGregor fought Seaver and, and, you know, yes, he beat Poirier, but that's all who he beat and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. I'm not even saying any of that's wrong. Dude, do you understand how, how limited in time that's going to be? This is the ultimate fighting championship, friendo. You, you, you want to fight the best? They will oblige you. Oh, sooner or later, you're going to fight them. And you're going to find out real fast what Conor McGregor is made of. Whatever happened in the past, you know, it happened. But from, from, Jose, from Jose Aldo on out, he's going to be getting some tough outs, man. You're going to find out real fast. The next year of Conor McGregor's life, you're going to learn more about him than you ever realized from a technical perspective. Either he is going to be able to do the things he said, or he's about to have a real bad year. It's going to be one of the two. Overeem's career prospect. Um, after the fight with Rothwell, I asked you whether Overeem's career was in a definitive decline, and you thought that it was. Still agree. I agree. His performance against Struve did nothing to change that idea, but this fight with Nelson certainly made me think he could be of importance again. You are crazy. I'm not talking about a title shot or beating JDS necessarily, okay, but in this shape, I can envision him doing more in the heavyweight top 10 than just getting KO'd again and again. Well, sure, but decline does not mean done. If you're getting KO'd again and again, you're done. Decline means you're kind of on the out. You're 34. Where is this really headed? And if you can't beat JDS, then who are you beating? If you can't beat JDS, you probably can't beat Steve Miocic because they were neck and neck. So who can you beat? All right, you might be able to beat a few guys, sure. But he's saying he wants a JDS fight. He's saying he's still coming for the title. You know, can he beat Verdum on a second try? I don't think so. This is not the same one guy from Strike Force. Meanwhile, Verdum has gotten better and better. So there you go. Do you agree that this fight might become a turning point in Overeem's UFC career? Or is my Dutch nationality making me cheer too soon? I think you're cheering way too soon. Way too soon. Here's the deal with a lot of these guys who are in the 34, 35, 36 range, or in Nelson's case, 38. The train to the retirement has already left the station. It's just a matter of when it arrives. Like this idea, you can turn it around. No, you can slow it, maybe even stop it for a little bit, but it's not going back the other way. Like the, that process is already in motion. And look, all those guys were talking about Nelson, uh, Overeem, Mir, Bigfoot, whoever else, you can point them out. They've had like really distinguished careers. There's, there's, this is not an insult to, to them. This is just recognizing the space that we're in. And guys at heavyweight can be older, sure. Um, they can go a little bit longer than normal, okay. I'm not saying that they're done tomorrow by any stretch of the imagination, but 
you know, just understand where they are. They are they are in the process of exiting, however slow or quickly that may be. But that's the process. The process is that well. It's up in the air. No, it's that way. Uh, this was from my inbox. Is it possible for a 155 pound fighter to be strong without using PEDs? Sure, because Habib. Well, we don't know. Actually, we don't know because he's never been randomly tested, but hopefully we can figure that out. The great state of Texas basically gave the willing cheater a free pass when it was announced that no pre-fight testing would be done should that announcement have been made. Whether or not you announce that there's going to be those things, to me, is irrelevant. Either you do the testing or you don't. And if you don't, forget it. Um, is Rafael Dos Anjos, Habib Nurmagomedov, excuse me, is the... Rafael Dos Anjos, um, what is the RDA that lost to Nurmagomedov the same one that beat Pettis? I ask this as Dos Anjos has looked incredible in his last two fights. The way Joe Rogan talks it, it sounds like he'll be able to repeat his performance if they have a rematch. On a personal note, uh, I'm really pleased with Dos Anjos. We all feel that in my life that nothing is going right, but Dos Anjos showed to never lose hope when someone, when everyone else does. All right, that's a somber note, but uh, anyway. There's a lot of questions about their rematch, and I think it's <clears throat> it's all inevitable and important. We got to see how he looks against Cerrone, guys. Not that Cerrone is the best test and the ultimate arbiter. Cerrone, as we mentioned, has porous takedown defense. Cerrone has a good guard, but as we know, you know, even if you don't have necessarily the same kind of explosion athleticism, you don't necessarily need that for submission defense. You kind of have to have just good timing and good balance, and 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 you know, if you could pass over one leg, most submissions go away anyway, especially in MMA. So. So not that Cerrone is like this full-on, thorough vetting of whether, wow, Nurmagomedov is back. But Nurmagomedov, well, if he can't even show some of the basic things he had before against Cerrone, then we have a moment for concern. Or conversely, if he can put a guy like Cerrone away, which, you know, even, even before the injury, I'm not sure I would have said, uh, that would tell us that, you know, okay, there's still like, you know, a ton of vibrancy left. But before we make all these claims about how he's going to look against Dos Anjos, I would still favor Nurmagomedov based on that first fight, but I, I just desperately need to see what he looks like. I desperately need to see. Because I feel like there was moments he was forced to reset and Dos Anjos was able to circle out when his entries were more reckless than other ones. Is he fixing those entries? Is he, is he tightening up the jab, the double, triple jab inside? Um, what's he doing to get in on there? But, but man, once he got in, that part I'm not worried about. Logical next opponent for Joanna. Joanna, do you think Paige Van Zandt will get the McGregor treatment and leapfrog the division for a title shot if she beats Felice? Uh, not if she beats Felice, but if she beats Felice and somebody else, maybe. She doesn't have the credentials, but since when has that mattered to the UFC? I mean, she already has better sponsors and more media attention than some of these existing champions. Yeah, but that might mean they milk it along for a while too, but they don't want to necessarily just throw her to the wolves right away. They want to, you know, she she actually like, you know, I, I don't know how well she can fight, but she can fight. She's not, she's not a nobody. She's not a, a, a person sort of a, a phony stature. She can, she can, she has ability. And so um, the question is, do you want to ruin that by having her just get whooped early, which I think would happen if she fought again, Jay Chick, or you say, okay, listen, for all the 
talk about her looks and the sponsorships and all the you know um, photo spreads that she's a part of. We actually have something who, who, who can fight. Let's maybe develop that a little bit. Let's maybe do something with that. And then who knows what that could end up meaning. But, you know, I don't know how she'll ever match the striking after that takedown defense. We. All right. Uh, from my inbox. My inbox. Cain Velasquez isn't a typical slow-moving, powerful, hitting heavyweight. He is a fast-paced monster who puts on assaults on other human beings. And would it be worth risking John Jones's health and potential stardom for that fight? Is the possible outcome of his claim to be the greatest MMA fighter of all time worth the risk of a Velasquez war? Um, yes and no. Yes and no. All these things have to kind of work out the moment they did. Like, there's all this talk about, oh, well, Mayweather-Pacquiao didn't happen, you know, five, six years too late. I'm, my thought about that is, like, certainly it would have been fun to have that five years ago. I mean, who could deny otherwise? But sometimes these things happen at the times they do because it just wasn't ready to happen any other time. A lot of factors have to be in play, and they have to make sense for the stakeholders and what they want out of themselves and what they expect and what they're looking for. To answer your question, right now, would it make sense to give him to Velasquez? Even if I thought John Jones could beat him, I'm not sure that he could, but... Let's say I let's say even I thought that would I still say hey after that Rumble Johnson fight let's send him to heavyweight and fight Velasquez you know I'm not so sure I'm really not so sure I I, I would um, I wouldn't want to wait to a point where no one had any interest in it anymore but it's that balancing act things have to happen in a career a guy has to look a certain way and um, a division has to be in a certain state. And a matchup has to have a certain amount of intrigue and um, the, the consequences of it have to have a certain measure, good and bad, to them. And right now, to your point, certainly you could see a case, a very clear case maybe, where Velasquez would go in there and do the kind of damage to Jones that would just be irreparable for, in terms of harm for um, that claim he wants to make to be the best fighter ever about his ability to, you know, just after this last pay-per-view where he got another 700000 plus pay-per-view buy draw you know, to, to diminish that. Why would you want to do that? So commercially, it doesn't make sense. From a technical standpoint, maybe it does. But even then, it feels like they haven't quite reached the point where there's a certain magnetism between the two. And so that's what I would say to you. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that this case will forever be that way. And if we wait until you know Velasquez has so many injuries and is too old for the fight to have any kind of value, well, well then we waited too long. But... Fights happen the majority of the time. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, sometimes bigger fights happen only when they can, is what I would say. Sometimes the super, I mean, how, first of all, it's just hard to make a super fight happen at all. Hell, forget super fights. Look at uh, Gennady Golovkin. He can't get anyone to fight him, poor bastard, right? Uh, and that's now those aren't even exactly super fights. That's a different circumstance, of course. But the point being is, um, in the case of this, which would be a weight class changing super fight, it's hard. It's hard. You you risk a lot if something goes wrong, and the chance of something going wrong, as you can see after UFC 185, you know, because the UFC had invested so much in Showtime, and the whole thing had been 
Showtime this, Showtime that, welcome to the show, blah, 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 blah. Um, you see that it can backfire. It can backfire badly. And, you know, obviously Jones has a bigger and better reputation than Pettis has or may ever will have. Uh, to that extent, maybe Cain Velasquez does too. But those fights have to happen at just the right time, just the right time. And they often happen at just a bit after the right time because it's so hard to make them at the right time. There's so much risk involved. So, no, I would not make that fight now. At least not, not right away, no. Top wrestlers and their ground and pound. Luke, I was wondering about your thoughts on why many high-achieving college wrestlers are able to translate power into their standing strikes but are nowhere near as effective when it comes to their GNP. Examples, Cormier, Hendricks, Askren, although he's improving, and Rochal. It's a good question. You know, I talked to Duke Rufus about this um, in the case of Askren. And what he was saying was, no, Askren's not one of these guys who will bang you out on the feet. But what he did say was that the muscle groups and the balance required for ground and pound is just really different than the muscle groups and the balance required for striking on the feet. They're actually two different things, two different systems of the body that have to work in different formats. And so what they found is that if you can wrestle, chances are the muscle groups and the systems of balance in play for at-range striking are easy to use and or develop. It, it's not so clear that those muscle groups are the same ones for ground and pound. That's one explanation, I think. And when you can believe it or not, you know, that was just Duke Griffiths' theory that he told me uh, on a couple of occasions. Another theory that I have, though, is that they just don't want to let their hands go off of them. Right? They just, they're they're just uncomfortable with that idea. There's something about gripping a shoulder and grabbing behind someone's arm and having two hands on the leg or double underhooks about just using your arms to keep them in close contact. There's something about that. There's something alluring to them about the idea of, of just not letting them go. So you'll see them throw short elbows or if they're putting weight on them, you know, going body, body, head, something like that. I think it's a fair point that you raise. I would say it's a combination of my theory and Duke's, or maybe it's something else altogether. But in thinking about that question and then consulting other experts, uh, that's what I've been told, and that's sort of my thought about it. You just, they're not comfortable with the idea of creating, like to strike effectively, what do you have to do, even on the ground? You have to create space. And when they're on those control positions, even in a control position, how willing are they to create space to let a fist fly? I'm not so sure they're that eager to do it. I think they'd much rather keep everything tightly close and compact. Because if you get away, even from a dominant position, it just doesn't do you a lot of good. Who could beat Nurmagomedov? Here's the problem with Nurmagomedov. He really, I mean, mentioned this at the top of the chat, really want to see him work on his cardio, and I really want to see him work on his finishing, and I really want to see him work on his striking. What he has in his grappling is so dominant and so thorough and so far above his peers that maybe those other liabilities don't bother him. But if you're asking me who has more liabilities across their game, Nurmagomedov has more liabilities across his game than Dos Anjos. If you measure out all the different parts of someone's game, 
and you say, who has more defensive liabilities in these particular areas? I'm going to tell you Dos Anjos has fewer of them. What I'm also going to say, though, is that in a skill set that's already dominant, like wrestling, and, you know, wrestling is you know, grappling and everything else, his is so high that it makes up for a lot. You know, there's so much he can do with it once he gets there. And he's been able to get there relatively easily. Um, but there are still moments where he, you know, someone's going to clip him, man. Someone's going to do it. Someone's going to someone's going to nail him with an uppercut when he comes in wild. If he keeps doing that, it's just an, it's just MMA. It's inevitable. Everybody loses and everybody gets exposed for their weaknesses, such that they exist over time. Uh, how important do you think a fighter's motivation and mentality is for the outcome? I feel it is often overrated because it makes for good one-liners. He just never gives up or that kind of thing. And it's easier to discuss how tough someone is than to break down their technique. But seeing a spars in the cage makes me second guess slightly. It almost seemed as though she had accepted defeat from the onset and her performance was degraded because of that. Let me just tell you, even in sport jiu-jitsu, from my limited experience relative to everyone else out there, it's ab mental fortitude is so real it is 100 percent real we got this guy in our gym um he's only like a two-stripe blue belt he's good i think at another gym he'd be a purple belt to be perfectly honest but um um this kid you know he's got good technique um and he goes and goes and goes but like you should see him when we do like the shark tank bit you know, where everyone just takes turns on you for like five or six or seven or eight or nine, 10 minute rounds. Uh, I never seen someone who just refuses to quit. He's not a black belt. He's not, not by any stretch, not even a purple belt. I mean, he might be in another gym, you know, but he's not a brown belt for sure. Okay. And this dude gives everybody fits because he will not quit. He will not, you have to take it from him. It's, 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 it's 100% real mental fortitude. These fighters, they live and die in their own minds. Why do you think they say crazy things? People make fun of Brendan Schaub sometimes because the things he says kind of don't match the reality in which, you know, he's living. So what? He's supposed to say stuff like that. If you have a desire to compete, you have to believe, you have to believe fundamentally, I can beat these guys. It was funny to me. Um, you know, I don't know where you live in the country, but obviously I live in DC. And so the local teams here for March Madness, which I haven't done my bracket yet, starts tomorrow. This was so funny to me. This was so funny to me. Um, so Selection Sunday came out and you know, they always film teams reactions about where they get seated. And of course, I think in the tournament here, we got like uh, Virginia's in the tournament, Maryland's in the tournament, Georgetown's in the tournament. I'm not sure who else from the uh, GW's in the NIT, I think. Um, whatever the case. Uh, anyway, long story short, Maryland got a, you know, a tough seed. Okay. Uh, they'll probably have to play Kentucky here pretty soon if they even advance at all. And you see at Selection Sunday, they show the players' reactions on the board to when their seating comes up. And you can see him being like, oh, hmm. you know, like half smiling. And it was just funny to me. I'm not here to, you know, listen, those guys are good athletes too, and they're, I'm sure they're mentally tough as well. 
But it, to me, it's like Nurmagomedov wouldn't even cared at all, <laughs> right? If he had been on that team, he'd have cheered just the same. It wouldn't matter if Kentucky was next or last because he goes into whatever fight he's in with the utmost confidence. My friend, you are going to lose to me sooner or later. It's going to happen. It's, it's a complete mindset. And maybe some of that mindset comes from a faith in his own skills. Okay, fine. But, you know, a lot of guys um, have faith in their skills and their skills aren't up to par. Yes, the Madoff might actually be the best lightweight on earth. We don't know that yet. He might be. Um, but I just mean, if even if they're, they're supposed to be delusional, you're supposed to have a mental, the, the threshold of what you think mentally should be nothing, nothing less than victory if you actually want to win. Because if there's so much as a crack in the armor and you face adversity, the crack becomes, uh, you know, more than just a little splinter in the brick. It'll break it all down. It's the truth. It's absolutely the truth. These guys, they live and they die in their own mind. There absolutely is something to, to having the right attitude. There absolutely is something to the idea of having someone mentally break. All of that is real. And if, if at the highest level, if it's off by even a smidge, you are going to get hurt. Fact. Fact. There are many very talented athletes who have lost, not just in combat sports, in all sports, because they weren't in the proper frame of mind. Sports psychology sounds like, you know, it almost sounds like witch doctor, snake oil salesman. It is not. It is not. It is 100% real and 100% necessary for many, many, many athletes. Did you contrast RDA's performance against Pettis with that of Melendez? Both obviously wanted to pressure Pettis to take away the kicking game, but was it ex what was it exactly that made RDA execute his game plan so much better? <sighs> Couple of things. Um, someone notes power, right? So, for example, they say, I think Melendez is lacking the strength of RDA. RDA is one of the strongest at 155, and this will allow a significant grappling advantage regardless of skill. But even when you account for all of his skill, RDA's grappling is superior to that of Melendez. It's certainly more complete. Uh, okay, that's part of it. I also think that the, um, listen, how did uh, Dos Anjos win? It's, that was a virtuoso performance. One of the most complete beatings of a champion I've ever seen, right? So when you ask, what did he do different than Melendez? One, he had a much wider arsenal of takedown attempts from different setups that were quicker. That's the first one. I thought the speed differential was enormous. I did not, I did not detect a big speed differential on Melendez. Melendez, a little more one note with his takedown opportunities, right? And that's why Pettis was able to adjust off of them. Not the case with, with Dos Anjos, okay? Secondly, I thought his striking defense was good. So you just... You, and the power from his fists, not just from clinching, but from his fists and his legs, he had pieced them up a little bit. And so there was a hesitation from the pressure, from the, from the, uh, from the shortening of the stance that Pettis had to use. So all these factors got him backing up, 
got him thinking, got him hesitant, got him hurt. And then you factor in the other pieces of the counter offense that Dos Anjos was able to lay into it. Melendez never had any of that. Melendez had decent pressure. He had decent takedown attempts. Um, he had okay speed, but was way more hittable on the feet. Uh, you know what I also noticed? I thought that Dos Anjos' hand speed made his boxing come to life way more than Melendez. It actually had shut down much of Pet much of Pettis's striking comes from some sort of formation of the kicks. Do they come first? They come in the middle. They come last. But that's really the centerpiece of his striking offense. He had some good uppercuts. That's true, um, but that's not the calling card of his offense. But when you allow him to just sit back and pick his shots and time you, his boxing actually takes another level. But if you can shut it down with all the things I mentioned before, plus the superior hand speed, plus the ability to actually crack, which Dos Anjos can do now, um, that goes away a little bit. So it was all those things, I think. Just there was a lack of diversity in, strike down, uh, in the takedown attempts. They became a little predictable in the entry. Uh, they'd be able, they, he was able to time him. I mean, that's how he how do you get the guillotine. He timed, uh, I think it was a right hand, which forced a ill-advised shot. When the ill-advised shot came, he got the guillotine and then rolled into the mount. Lights out, bro. Um, and maybe he would have got that at the head kick that he threw in the second or third round was just a little bit closer, but it wasn't. It just wasn't closer. I thought his defense was good, you know. He got he got pieced up a little bit too, but not that bad. Luke, who is most likely to be inducted into the UFC's Hall of Fame this year, and who would be your choice if asked? Uh I wonder if Rampage might get in there, depending on how things go. Um, stranger things have happened, really. Um, who else is nearing the end here? It's a good question. Someone says Burt Watson. Yeah. Again, stranger things have happened. The Hall of Fame is so weird because it has nothing to do, or very little to anyway, to do with achievement. Uh you know, you wonder about Anderson Silva, what might happen with him. I suspect he'll still get in. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a crazy – it's a good question. Disregarding their current exclusive contracts, would it be possible to put on a three- to four-hour Super Bowl-type broadcast? Who is going to turn in for a four – MMA fans are a little bit clueless about this. The average person is not tuning in for a four-hour, one-fight broadcast. And you can say, well, we'll put other fights on the card. There's not going to be that kind of money for it. No. Would it make the same amount of money if it was on pay-per-view? Absolutely not. They're going to make a, a murderous killing on that. It wouldn't even approach what they're going to get on pay-per-view. I mean, just do the math. If, it's not, if they do three and a half million buys, which I don't think is crazy at all, and they get $100 a buy, do the math on that, and then look at other TV deals, you know, annual TV deals. Someone says, please don't test hot. After a masterful performance from RDA, my first thought, this is them, them talking, not me, my first thought after the fight was, God, I hope he isn't on anything. 
is this an unfair assumption to make? It is not. It is not an unfair assumption to make. Look, I tried to make this point signal to noise, but there were like these trolls in the comment section that, that just make life horrible. Um, couple of things. Number one, I don't think there's any denying that RDA's career trajectory is unusual. To go 0-2 and, and then 4-4 and, and then 8-1, and one, especially from like a, you know, a moment in time where you can sort of pinpoint a difference, 2012 basically, um, that's unusual. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. It may mean nothing. It may just mean just that, that it was unusual, but otherwise nothing. He just kind of figured it out and slowly got better, and that's that. And in fact, we do have guys who have done that. You know, Matt Brown kind of slowly turned things around. Um, Mark Hunt has slowly turned things around. But the difference is, I think whatever you want to think of Pettis, he is a championship caliber fighter. I mean, he was a champion and had defended his belt. And, um, and he was made to look like he didn't even belong. You know, as good as Matt Brown has become and as good as Mark Hunt has become, they still lose pretty handily. I mean, the Lawler fight was close, but you know, he lost kind of handily to Johnny Hendricks. And Verdun KO'd Mark Hunt, right? So there's that. Uh, to go out and just beat a champion the way he did, yeah, it's unusual. Again, what does it mean? No clue. I don't know. So there's that. But even if that wasn't the case, even if his career trajectory was totally normal, right? Just a guy who had a lot of promise at the beginning and slowly built on it, like let's say a Nurmagomedov. I think his, his rise has been pretty steady, injuries notwithstanding. If you've, in, in the climate in which we have, which is that commission-led fight night urine testing is unbelievably inadequate, as a measure, if you want, if you, and we can have that debate, but if you want to have drug testing, if that matters to you, and it matters to most of you, for better or for worse, the fight night urinalysis is simply, you know, some countries when you travel, they, they require you to get a visa. You're like, oh, that's a pain in the ass. Not really. You can just go and pay five bucks at a, at a, at a kiosk when you land. Turkey was like that when I went to Turkey last year. Right, that's what that is, versus try to get you know a specialized license or visa to get into a country that's hard to get into for whatever other kinds of restrictions. Unless you have had uh, out of competition random blood and urine testing, um, you simply haven't been vetted yet, and that goes for everyone. It goes for Pettis, it goes for Nurmagomedov, goes for Dos Anjos, it goes for everybody. It goes for everybody. Um, so. The fact that his career rise being unusual, maybe that's immaterial. Maybe in the end that doesn't matter. It, it, maybe it does. I don't know. Point being is, let's assume for just a moment it has nothing to do with anything. Even if that's the case, and it may, may very well be, the fact that he has not been thoroughly vetted, and many others in the UFC have not as well. This applies to all of them. If, you ha if you're a championship, I mean, this applies to all fighters, but especially if you're a championship caliber fighter or a champion, and you have yet to be randomly tested, you are not a vetted fighter yet. In fact, you're just not. And even if you beat that stuff, that's not the end of the world, but it's at least some measure. We know it's catching some guys more than it has caught others. Um, it's catching enough of them to be problematic for, you know, for 
mixed martial arts as a sport. And unless you've gone through that process yet, sorry, man, you just haven't, you haven't answered all the questions yet. And that may not be um, fair to guys who are totally clean, who are, have like a, you know, a little bit of doubt about them, but we are in a climate where the testing is such a joke and the use is way more rampant than we're led to believe that you ha if you haven't gone through that yet, you need to. So that's what I would say. If you're, if you're skeptical just on those terms, you have a right. Now, if you're doing the old eye test, well, he looks more muscular than he used to, you know, that's not very scientific. I don't know how I would, I would, I would classify that. Again, even with his unusual career trajectory, in the end, that may mean absolutely nothing. Um, so you have to be very careful about those kinds of things. But where's the random testing? Let's see what happens after that first, and then we'll move on from there. That goes for Dos Anjos, and it goes for anybody else, whether we like him or not who has not had that done to them yet. Uh, which seems to be the better championship formula for modern MMA? Lifelong grappler who recently developed striking or lifelong striker who can stuff takedowns like there's nobody's business? Or do you think they are completely interchangeable depending on the matchups and the weight classes? Largely the last one that you have. Here's what I would say. A lifelong grappler who recently developed striking is, there's no such thing. Lifelong grapplers take much longer to get good at striking. And maybe that's the reason why RDA has only now really sort of turned things around the last couple of years. Because it took him such a long time to get his striking on point. However, a lifelong striker can get, some of them, and again, this all varies from person to person, but in general, a lifelong striker can begin to stuff takedowns much better than other ones. Um, it's easier to pick up anti-wrestling and anti-jiu-jitsu when you have such a strong striking base. I mean, the fights start on the feet, right? Uh, they're often restarted on the feet, right? The rounds start on the feet. There's a, it's a, the game's a little biased in that regard, especially with stand-up rules and things like that. So to me, they have a different um, length of time before you become proficient at it. What I would say is over the long haul, it, it's to me, it's better to have someone like RDA because there's no place where he's weak. Yo, Joanna has fantastic takedown defense, it looks like. But if you get her on her back, maybe Esparza couldn't do anything with it, but I'm not sure that's the end of the discussion here. You know, if, if the, eventually it comes around like somebody who's a number of at 115 for them, that person would, seems to me, give Joanna some serious problems. Right, because that's still she has two phases of the game, insanely good. But that's still that lagging third. There's no real lagging third for RDA. Yes, he may not have some of those portions as good as um, Nurmagomedov. We'll see about that in the rematch if there is one. But he still has, by I think anyone's reasonable standard, pretty good at all three levels. It just takes a lot longer to get good at striking if you come from grappling. But to learn anti-grappling. Because you're not asking about full-on grappling. To learn anti-grappling, anti-wrestling, anti-jiu-jitsu from striking, that comes a little quicker. True, false. Yoanna uh, and Jacek defends her belt more than twice. I'll say sure. Henry Cejudo gets a title shot if he beats Formiga. Unfortunately, it might be true, but I'm going to wishfully think and say false. Michael Johnson defeats Pettis. You know what? He's really proactive too, but he's a little wild. So I'm gonna. But he backed up. Um, he backed up uh, Barboza, didn't he? I'll still say Pettis. 
Rampage still fights at UFC 186. I have an article coming out about this. I'm going to say no, but it's not a very confident no. It's a 51-49 no. Cummins decisions OSP. Yeah, that's probably true. Hyung Lim finishes Neil Magny. Neil's a little more technical, and Lim is a little bit more uh, aggressive and physical. Um, finishes him. I'll say false. The next big UFC presser is titled Boom, 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 Bang, Bang, Bang. <laughs> uh, maybe. Um, someone leaves a very nice comment about, I did an interview with the uh, DC Improv, and uh, if you want to listen to that, I can, uh, I'll post it underneath here, uh, it just talks a little bit of personal bio, and then, you know, some of my experiences in MMA, and because it was a DC Improv, it's a comedy club, they, uh, you know, asked about the intersection of MMA humor, about which I am no expert, but I just sort of gave um, a few details and ideas I had. Look, if you were given an opportunity to interview one, anyone in MMA, fighters, personalities, anyone in the sport this week, Who's the one person that you would pick? Any reason in particular you chose this person? What kind of questions would you ask? Uh, I would pick probably Lorenzo Fatita because there's so many questions I would like to ask him. Um, yeah, that's who I'd pick. Come back to Twitter here real quick. Give him some quick ones. Um, who do you think will end up with the most title defenses at the end of their career? Jones? Rousey, DJ, or Aldo? Good question. Oh, and someone says for the Hall of Fame, BJ Penn should go in. Yeah, totally. Good call. Um, who will have the most title defenses at the end of their career? Jones, Rousey, DJ, or Aldo? I will say Jones, but I'm not sure about that one. Who would you match Sergio Pettis and Ryan Benoit with for their next fights? Man, that's a tough one. Sergio Pettis has been dropped three times in his last five fights. There's a problem there. And he's still fighting on the prelims. Um, I would not give him a ranked fighter for his next one. I just wouldn't. Whereas I don't even know where he's ranked. But I would have a real, real problem with that. Um, Sergio Pettis, man, he is so confounding. Um, God, you know, because he's so technical, but he, like, whatever you want to say about Anthony Pettis' problems, whatever you want to say about he was overrated or what, all that might be true, but you at least, again, have to acknowledge the stuff he is good at. And the, I mean, the narrowest of time and spaces, he will blow you up, right? The narrowest of time and spaces, he will blow you up. Um... Sergio lacks all of that. And he's a little bit not as defensively minded as his brother is either. So where is... Oh, yeah, man. I wouldn't give him anyone in the top 15 at all. Not that Benoit was, but... Jeez, I don't know. I have to look at the roster, but... You know, he just needs a lot more seasoning. He needs a lot more seasoning. He's so good at so many things, but the liabilities he has are... They're just too glaring for this level. And Benoit, I don't know either. Pound for pound, who's better, Korean zombie or stun gun? Well, I don't know, because stun gun doesn't fight up to his potential anymore, so I guess I'll say Korean zombie. Here's a good question. I want to end on this. Tough one, but 
Should Duke Rufus have stopped the fight when Pettis said he couldn't see out of his eye? There are different opinions on this, and I respect – I want to be – this is not me equivocating. This is honestly true. If you think that Duke Rufus should have stopped the fight when Pettis told him that he couldn't see, I don't think you're crazy or wrong or some kind of, you know, sissy or something like that, uh, whatever people may say about it. I think it's a legitimate concern. Um, personally, though, I don't think he should have stopped the fight. Um, what I would have liked to see is him say, do you want me to stop it? You know, to at least have some kind of, because what Duke did was he didn't even acknowledge it. And I understand why. Um, listen, I think Duke knows Anthony better than I know him and then you know him. And so when Anthony tells him that, and maybe even in the way in which he tells him that, Duke is able to pick up on certain signals about how troubling that might be. I truly believe that. I think a lot of people are bringing in what happened with Duke's gym in the past, uh, which may or may not have happened to people. To, I wrote an article about it. You know, it sounds like there may have been a bit of an issue back in the day, but it doesn't sound like there's much of one these days. Um, I don't think he would jeopardize Anthony's health intentionally. Now, I mean, I mean, what you're either arguing, you may have been like, well, it doesn't matter if it's intentional, I still may have been doing it. But I, here's what I would say there's no way I know Pettis would have quit. Um, ultimately, um, you're certainly putting your fight in, fighter in danger by sending him out there. But I would, in this particular case, because the eye was not closed and it did not appear to be fractural orbital damage, um, while I would have liked to have heard him inquire more about the extent of the injury and what they wanted to do about it, I and I did think he was getting some bad advice about, hey, you know, you have your own double leg there. You know, that, that to me was just, in retrospect, just seemed like pretty poor advice. Um, but I did not think that Duke had an obligation to stop it. Could he have wanted to? Could he have, could he have if he wanted to? Maybe. But was it inappropriate to not do it? I have a hard time saying yes to that. I have a very hard time saying yes to that. I understand opinions differ, and you may say whatever you want. For me, mm, opinion, I, I, I feel like they have a certain understanding of what they can and can't do and what they should and should not do. People bring up the Lester Munson issue, which to me is like, uh, not Lester Munson, but um, uh, the kid Munson who um, who passed away, the kickboxing guy of the Rufus Gym. Duke wasn't even there for that. It has his name on it, but he wasn't even there for that. So this idea that you're trying to like copy and paste the inappropriate regulation and corner management of something that happened with his name on it that he was not present for onto this fight that's a tenuous argument you're asking me when you can have an issue with Duke and what he did at his gym or did not do or whatever, but that is not a fair argument to me. I, I feel like whenever I've talked to Duke, he has a profound care for Anthony Pettis. That doesn't mean he won't make wrong decisions here or there, but I, in this particular case, while I would have liked to have heard him inquire more about it, I will be deferential to him in the idea that he understands his fighter better than we do. And that because there were certain cosmetic, not even just cosmetic, uh, functional things about the vision that were not obstructed, even if the Anthony may have had problems. Um, it, I don't think he had to stop it. He could have if he wanted to. It wasn't required. All right, we are way over time. We got to go. You can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. You can email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. And we will have coverage this weekend of UFC Fight 962. And um, oh, I will be calling fights locally on Saturday night if you're in the area for Cagezilla. 
uh, it's formerly Operation Octagon. Um, so if you see me there, say hi, come out. It's at the Silver Eagle Group out in Ashburn, Virginia, which is 7,000 miles from D.C. where I live. But I'll be doing that on Saturday night. You can check it out on GoFi Live or it'll air on Comcast Sportsnet in the area in about a month or so. Until next time, uh, thank you guys very much. Stay frosty.